The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Come As You Were edition. It's Wednesday, March 13th, 2019. On today's show, Captain Marvel is the latest MCU offering. It's also the first with a woman in the lead. Brie Larson's turn as a caped crusader took in $455 million global BO over the weekend. A huge hit. Cannot wait to discuss with my cohorts. And then Pen15 is a Hulu comedy. It stars two 31-year-old women playing their seventh grade selves. And finally, what is it like to deliberate on the fate of another human being? We discuss a riveting article about um, jury duty with uh, its author, Seth Stevenson. Joining me today is the uh, deputy managing editor of the LA Times, who is, of course, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. Joining from LA. And then, of course, uh, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey. Captain Marvel is the 21st installment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the so-called MCU, uh, since Iron Man debuted in 2008, bringing the stable of Stanley icons to the big screen. This is the first one to star a woman. The movie is a prequel of sorts, as I understand it. I am not a MCU completist by any means and a mid-90s period piece. It includes meta-references to the pre-Marvel universe, including slow dial-up speeds in the blockbuster video chain, et cetera, et cetera. Brie Larson's Captain Marvel must fight aliens, earthlings, false memories, true memories, which she does with uh, incredible elan, in my opinion, a certain tomboyish puck. In real life, however, Brie Larson has had to fight an unending series of undermining attacks from fanboy trolls who hate the idea, I think, of women succeeding at doing anything, but especially at the thought of a woman succeeding as the star of, uh, of their superhero dreams. Well, the joke is on them. It took in this eye-popping figure of nearly a half a billion dollars of global box office over the weekend. In addition to Brie Larson, it stars Samuel L. Jackson and Jude Law. Let's listen to a clip. How long do you plan to be in town? Oh, I'll be out of your hair as soon as I track down the scrolls that are infiltrating your planet. Scrolls? Shapeshifters. They can transform to any life form down to the DNA. Oh boy, you guys don't have any clue, do you? Whoa, 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 hold on. How do we know you're not one of those shapeshifters? Congratulations, Agent Fury. You have finally asked a relevant question. Oh, congratulations to you, Star Force lady. You're under arrest. Okay, Dana. Let's start. Uh, let's start with you. I, I, you may have noticed, I, but I can't even bother trying to summarize the plot of these movies anymore. I mean, the plot really isn't what everything hangs on exactly. Um, instead, these movies presume heavily. The Marvel ones, especially, presume heavily on the charms of the lead person um what'd you make of this one a lot of critics liked it others found it somewhat routine yeah well first of all plot wise i would say that if people want to hear about every detail of how this movie fits into the marvel universe and how it's supposed to sort of slot into the next generation of marvel movies they should listen to the spoiler special we taped last <laughs> listen week. listen to a it. different podcast yeah, <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> well we taped a slate spoiler special with uh jonathan fisher slate's tech editor who is a comic book aficionado and has seen all the marvel movies and is very fun t- sort of talking about how they how they work together so we won't get into that in this discussion but as for my response to this movie i mean Upon seeing it and reviewing it, I felt somewhat lukewarm about it and just sort of generally rah-rah that there was finally a female-led Marvel movie, even if Marvel movies are not really my thing. Um, But honestly, my favorite thing about Captain Marvel so far is that it smashed at the box office. What gave me the superhero surging feeling of power didn't happen in the theater, but in reading the variety results and seeing all the records it broke, which if I start citing them, I'll get the details wrong. But I think it was the sixth biggest movie opening of all time. And this is a crazy stat. Outside of superheroes or comic books or anything, this movie had the highest opening weekend gross for a female-led movie ever. So all of that was exciting. And yet, when we get back to the actual movie, I'm not sure, having now talked about this is the 21st in a 22-movie series, I'm not sure that I have a huge amount new to bring. Um, Brie Larson is good in this role, but the nature of the role 
is that the character Carol Danvers doesn't know who she is for about two thirds of the movie. Right. She's not sure if she's an alien or a human. And she has these memory fragments that come up and doesn't know whether they're implanted memories. And it seems like a difficult role to play with much conviction until well into the movie because she is by design something of a blank. Um, mm. What, Julia, what did you think of this movie? Get me out of my rhetorical spiral, Julia. What did you think of Captain Marvel? I think I would watch just about any movie starring Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson. The strength of those two performances carries this movie forward. And the scenes where they are interacting and enjoying each other's company and getting to know one another are the scenes that make this film work for the most part. Um, And beyond that, I thought this was a pretty mediocre entry uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and and in superhero movies generally. I did not not walk out with the sense of uh, holy moly exhilaration that I have had walking out of Black Panther, walking out of, I think, the first Guardians of the Galaxy, which to me was just such a triumph of doing something different with tone um, from from Wonder Woman, which I think Dana and I both felt very moving. It felt nice to be able to take the fact of an ass-kicking female superhero a little bit more for granted um, than I did in the Wonder Woman movie. But I think, Dana, the point you identify, which is that literally the plot is that um, this character has kind of glimmers of selfhood, but she's being told by her uh, training boss, played by Jude Law, that she must suppress her selfhood, and then she literally can't remember herself, does make it a tough performance to pull off. I also want to talk a little bit about the direction. I mean, these these movies are now making a habit of hiring really talented directors who've come up through the indie circuit, come up through unexpected circuit. It's not just a succession of Michael Bay movies about superheroes, um, which I think has lent uh, a lot of interest and texture to the the types of movies that have come out. I do not think that Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck, who um, I think the movie of theirs that we've discussed on the show is Sugar, which was a really wonderful film. Um, they were also the directors of Half Nelson and Mississippi Grind. You know, they're known for a much more intimate style. And I felt like the big old set pieces, the like smash em, bash em, galaxy, skull, scroll, whatever's were really bad in this movie. Like just kind of, you know, that grungy silvery gray film that they put over scratch tickets that you have to scratch off. It felt like the whole movie was being seen through that like metallic gray film. The whole first 20 minutes of it is just like a bunch of computer pixels fighting other computer pixels for the most part. The movie snaps a little bit more into focus when it lands on Earth um, and uh, it attempts to be a 90s set piece. But the the I, I did not, I mean, in general, I don't love the CGI outer space hoo-ha, but I thought this was a particularly bad set of it and, it, and I found it distracting and it made it hard for me to settle into the story. I re- I kind of really liked it for its lack of jangly, you know, lurid technicolor aspects. I thought there was something kind of muted and paced about it uh, with some, I thought, kind of great screwball elements. I mean, first of all, I totally agree with you, Julia, between Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson. Follow these people anywhere. Watch them read the phone book. They're great. Um, we should mention that because it's a throwback to the mid '90s, Samuel L. Jackson has had his face—I I, I think—CGI'd or something in order to take out its evidence of its aging, in order to make him look like Samuel L. Jackson looked in the mid '90s, which is a little disorienting at first. Um, yeah, it's strange. It's almost—it's almost disorienting because it's so effective, don't you think? I mean, it's pretty successful CGI, but since we just know that Sam Jackson doesn't look like that, it takes yeah. about half an hour to get used to it. The same thing yeah. happens to Clark Clark Gregg, the actor who appears as the other agent. <laughs> I just was like, he looks great, fantastic. <laughs> He's had know. some He's work had done. Some work, <laughs> exactly. <Dana. laughs> uh, I but I I kind of you know I. Th- I went in not knowing that it was the Sugar Guys who directed it and found myself pleasantly surprised by the trippiness of this person phasing in and out of possible false, possibly true memories. Is she an alien, an earthling, some kind of weird hybrid? Is she your, your, her brain? This is kind of delivered as a premise up front, so it gives nothing away, but she's sort of being brain hacked in order to get certain codes. And and I I thought all of that trippiness and multiple planes of reality was actually quite 
artfully done. It made me wonder who who had directed the movie. Uh, and then, you know, it's like the balance of the, I mean, to my mind, these movies really work. The Marvel movies really work when they're screwballs. They're screwballs that just happen to feature people who can fly or punch really hard or, you know, whatever it is. And um, I thought that this was just, you know, at its heart, kind of a gentle, funny screwball, you know, dolled up to ridiculous lengths in order to pass as a, um, you know, as a portentous uh, superhero movie. But I was, I, you know, I really found the whole thing almost almost unbearably like pleasant and fun and witty and wry and uh, but you know essentially carried along by her performance which is all of those things and as you say dana like yeah with the added zhuzh of it going straight up the nostrils of the um sexist fanboys we should talk about the sexist fanboys because I feel like this movie was more than any Marvel movie that's come out in a while was pre-reviewed and pre-trashed by um, by lots of, of haters to the extent that the site Rotten Tomatoes, the movie review aggregator, has now banned, they should have done this long ago, but banned fan comments from people who haven't seen the movie yet. In other words, you can no longer prejudge a movie on Rotten Tomatoes, which I don't know why one was ever able to do that. But um, there was so much hate speech floating around on that website that they made that rule because of Captain Marvel. I you I trust you two to tell me if this is a stretch, but um, I felt like a kind of patriotic twinge at the movie's box office triumph, in part because among the many points of like geopolitical contention now between us and our supposed adversary uh, in Russia is you know is a, a referendum on masculinity that you know Putin has turned his regime into, which is you know. Men are men, women are women. The gender roles are are natural, predefined. Uh, effeminacy is a is a kind of moral deformation. Women resu- assuming masculine roles is a rip in the cosmic f- fabric. On and on. And I think you know we live in the age of of spamming and botting, and uh, the attacks on this movie, prejudged attacks on this movie, come from that same place, if not you know literally certainly you know metaphorically um and it was great it was great that a like a woman dressed as a like archetypal american superhero in the face of that kind of orchestrated and probably you know bot driven attack totally triumphed yeah yeah i feel i don't know how i got from like welling up with tears watching wonder woman in that theater in australia a couple years ago to kind of like yawning at this project. Um, and I, and I want to try and suss it out because there are a lot of things that this film does intelligently in terms of gender that I think are worth noting. Number one, um, she has no love interest. Like there's not even a glimmer of one. There's not a misdirected one. No, there's not uh, even a flirtatious comment directed her way. Right. Well, one guy tells her to smile and then she steals his motorcycle. But, um, the, the the yeah she she does not find self actualization through romantic love and that actually felt to me like the most radical thing in the movie um, that that you're not trying to have it all but ultimately the the point is to couple up I I liked that and do not want to take that for granted I also think um, I do not like her costumes in general I did not like the production design of this film, as I have noted, I found the aesthetics of it kind of grungy, but uh, her costume looks more like what uh, the various men in the Marvel Universe wear to fight. It's sort of um, neutral, gender neutral. You know, it's a little buxom, I suppose, but it's not um, revealing or It's armor, basically. It's futuristic armor. Yeah, she, 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 you know, the, the, she's not been sex potted up. I also think, I mean, the movie tries to engage a bunch of political themes beyond the one you note, uh, without spoiling too much. It's essentially a movie about family separation and about, um, making assumptions about others that are incorrect. It's also a movie about, um, female potential being squashed by the undermining of a, male boss um, and, you know, women trying to understand their power. There's all these elements of it that could have flown to the heights that I think some of the rhetoric in Black Panther did. But to me, it all just felt a little, I don't know, it did not achieve liftoff. And it's some combination of 
the aesthetics, drowning in Marvel murk, uh, the the significant challenge of having a main character who's discovering herself as you're discovering her. And I also think, I just want to say, I think there was a squandered opportunity here in terms of the music. So if you think about like the, the obvious effort here is to do for the 90s what the Guardians of the Galaxy movies did for the 70s and make these like incredible pop-in mixtapes that have all the iconic throwback songs. And maybe I'm just too close to it because I lived through the 90s. And if you lived through the 70s, you would also think the Guardians of the Galaxy picked all the wrong 70s songs. But I don't know, man. I did not feel that these were the 90s tracks that that most needed to be resuscitated or that were the most humorous or witty cues. They felt like wallpaper rather than like, oh, yeah. You know, I didn't get that sense of exhilaration. So, like, there was a lot lined up correctly. I just, I don't know, did not connect for me. Yeah, they were kind of the obvious 90s music choices, but they were they were fun. I liked hearing Hole's Celebrity Skin under the credits, but I must I have to tell you all that right just before we started taping, Chris Melanfi, Slate's pop expert, popped his head in to say, if you're talking about Captain Marvel, be sure to point out that Celebrity Skin is, is anachronistic because it came out in 1998. So they got that one wrong. All right. Well, uh, the movie's Captain Marvel. Uh, everyone seems to be going to see it. So if you do, let us know what you thought of it. Will you find us on Twitter? OK, moving on. All right, before we go any further, this is the moment in the podcast where we talk about business, whatever upcoming business we might have. Dana, what's uh, what's on the docket? Stephen, first of all, we just want to tell listeners again about the Slate Culture Newsletter. It's a way to keep up with all of Slate's culture coverage and get insight on movies, TV, books, music, my reviews, <laughs> everything else that's going on in culture on Slate. It's delivered in your inbox three times a week. If you want to sign up for it, you can visit slate.com slash culture news. Also, Slate Plus is celebrating its fifth anniversary this year, so we will be throwing parties across the country just for Slate Plus members. On April 3rd in D.C., in Brooklyn, and in San Francisco, you can enjoy a festive evening with some of your favorite Slatesters. It's going to include me and June Thomas here in Brooklyn, I know. And join us for drinks over a night of conversation and trivia games. Your first drink is on Slate. And thank you. Whether you've been a member for five years or five days, it's your support that makes our work possible. You can go to slate.com slash live for tickets and info. Thanks. Also, in Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about jury duty. We're having Seth Stevenson on for our third segment uh, to talk about his great piece, Guilty, that recently went up on Slate. That's uh, reporting on and remembering a trial that he served on on the jury for 20 years ago. And uh, in response to that and just in reflection on what it is to have a civic duty to serve on a jury, as we Americans do, we're all going to talk about our experiences with jury duty in the past. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program. It's a great way to support our site for just $35 for your first year. You will help cover the cost of producing our show and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of those shows and other benefits, such as the Slate Plus segment that you'll hear today. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, back to the show. Pen15 is a new sitcom. It's on Hulu, and it kind of has the opposite effect of Agent Fury's youthifying CGI in Captain Marvel in that the conceit of the show, quite original conceit, is that two 31-year-old actresses play their own seventh-grade selves or versions of their own seventh-grade selves, even as everyone else in the cast is completely age-appropriate. So the two 31-year-old, early 30s women, actresses interacting with other 13-year-olds as they play out the social politics of being seventh graders, the perils of being and the depiction of the show, really horny and really uncool. Um, the two 31-year-old actresses are also the co-creators of the show. They wrote um, many, if not most, of the episodes. Their names are Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle. Uh, the show's a very funny and a big hit with critics. Why don't we listen to a clip? Who else is in the homeroom with us? Like a Sam? Oh my God, he wishes. He wants you so bad. It's crazy. Not never in a trillion years. That's disgusting. Like hell no. No, I know. Do you think Alex is still dating Heather? No, absolutely not. I heard that they broke up. Because Heather gave a handjob to both Brant Day and Dustin Ellis Summer. Wait, what? Yeah. That whole bag. Such a slut. Oh my god, also, I heard that Connie M grew double D's her last night at camp. That's so effed up. How is that even possible? I don't know. It, like, happened in the middle of her sleep. That's so unfair that that happens to people. Right I wish now. that was me. <sighs> nah. Huh. I'm going to ask you something, and I want you to tell me the truth. Swear on your life. Swear. 
Do I look exactly the same as last year? Oh my god. I won't be mad. Oh Tell me. Oh my god, not at all. I won't all. be mad. Are you kidding me? Really? Promise. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, Julia, a lot of how someone is going to react to the show comes down to how they like uh, that banter and the and the rapport between the two leads. What did you make of this? I liked the show, a reflection on being an awkward teen in the 90s. I think about a half decade after I was an awkward teen in the 90s, there were some resonances and... Uh, um, I mean, in general, I would say I am in favor of the recent spate of shows in which teen sexuality is dealt with with extreme candor. This show, this called to mind for me, is Sex Education, the the show we just discussed a few weeks ago with Jillian Anderson playing the uh, sort of outre mom. I- I'm so happy these shows exist. It seems so much better than, you know, the version of teen sexuality that is kind of all about the ugly girl taking off her glasses and becoming the beautiful girl or the, you know, I mean, I loved the teen stories of the 80s, but, you know, we discussed looking back at, um, you know, some of the the Breakfast Club and Molly Ringwald's essay looking at the sexual politics of those things. I am all for a more modern, sex-positive, female-centric uh, exploration of the idea that it's hard to figure out how to be a sexual being. It's very confusing, uh, and we might all benefit from Think looking at that moment where we learn how to be sexual beings, they also seem to me like likely consequences of um, this moment when the sexual behavior of grownups suddenly is coming under scrutiny and it begins to seem like nobody who's a grown up has figured out how to be a sexual being in a responsible and, and um, like healthy, happy way. Uh, so I'm in favor of this show's existence and I enjoyed it somewhat. Uh, it, it, I think it's kind of squalid awkwardness makes the kind of aloof posh version British version of it where everyone's sort of hopelessly cool in their awkwardness um it kind of puts that on display and makes you realize how arch that show is because the show is just really 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 awkward um so I liked it I didn't like fall I don't feel like I'm gonna fall tumble down a you know 10 episode binge particularly but I liked it yeah, also probably not going to wildly binge on it. it. It all hangs on whether, as you say, you like the connection between those two actresses and to what extent you remain fascinated by the premise. You might say that what sets this show apart from what Julie mentioned is this round of middle school, high school sex comedies that are coming out that are really raunchy and in a way more for adults than children. Big Mouth being an animated version of the same thing. Uh, what sets this one apart is that is this strange concept that two 31-year-old women are playing 13-year-olds and all the people they're surrounded with are 13-year-olds. And uh, there's moments where that makes for some kind of funny frissons, especially with the boys they have crushes on. The show steps around this in a, in a clever and I think compassionate way so that you know we can see the crushes being played out without there being weird creepy scenes of the 31 year olds making out with actual 13 year olds um but the premise doesn't take it quite as far as i would like it to at times and that may be just because these are two really youthful looking 31 year olds and they really act 13 and you sort of forget at times that there is that age contrast between them and everybody they're surrounded with so it doesn't have the feeling of sort of like a a bad dream where you dream yourself back into middle school but you don't quite fit in. They, they really do fit in almost to a fault in a way. Um, one critique I would make about the show, and this is a lot to ask. I mean, I, I'm comparing it to, I think, one of the great high school shows ever. But if you think about Freaks and Geeks, right? The first couple episodes of Freaks and Geeks established this whole world with a huge number of characters, the the freaks, the geeks, right? The younger kids, the older kids, but also the parents, several sets of parents that are important in that show and several teachers that are important at the school. And there's a whole social context that it takes place in, whereas Pen15 is very focused on these two characters almost to the exclusion of the others. I guess after a few episodes, I'm four episodes in now, you do start to learn a bit about their families. And Maya Erskine's real mother plays her mother, which is kind of a charming touch. But it all seems to take place really in in bedrooms where they're acting out the dramas of their friendship. And as sweet as those dramas can be and as good as these two actresses are together in their in their connection, I kind of felt like it was taking place in a contextless world. I don't even know what state or city their middle mm-hmm. school is in. And mm-hmm. that, that ends up making it feel a bit unanchored. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm the father of a seventh grade, you know, girl. And I think the show is, it gets at something 
bittersweet and maybe even slightly heartbreaking about that age, which is that, God, one minute you really are still a fourth grader and you are deeply into your most innocent childhood friendship. And it uses like the same props for imaginative play, the same dolls, doll houses, toys, whatever, um, or like tropes that you've been working up over years uh, to create, to bulk out an imaginative world that you and your friend play in. And the next minute you're adolescence, like your kids confronted with sexuality, substance abuse, you know, a, a new, a new awareness of the fractures in your parents' marriage or their world, um, you know, and uh, a whole new kind of social politics enters into this hermetic half made up world that you've created with another friend you know, I think it's fair to say almost completely innocently. And as a parent, you know, parent who's watching this unfold, um, I thought the show was, was, you know, really perceptive about that. And I thought the conceit is, is, is good, but it at moments worked against its worked against itself for me because I often felt as though those actresses and those creators were sort of making a commentary about how, how the way that seventh grade breaks you is formative and stays with you. So ironically, when you're in seventh grade, you look forward to your 30-year-old self, which seems infinitely in the future, but you're going to be completely different and beyond this person who's tormented now. And in a way, I think that there's there's a really perceptive and really deeply poignant observation that no, in fact, you are sort of entering into the persona that you're or person that you're going to be and the worldview that you're going to be your sense of yourself as, and this is not, I'm not saying that this is unalterable by any means, but some elemental sense of yourself as appealing, unappealing, attractive, unattractive, um, sexy, not sexy, cool, uncool, popular, unpopular is, is going to set in at a deeper level. And even if you transcend it, it will be that, that you transcended in some sense. And I thought that was a plus. Where it became a minus for me is when I felt as though that commentary was really was directed against their 31-year-old selves as immature. Like I saw 31-year-old women who I kind of imagined outside, and this may not be fair, outside of the confines of the show, acting a little bit like unformed or it, it, it made me start to dislike them as the 31-year-olds that I imagined they are probably unfairly but they clearly love interacting with one another i think they were improv geeks together at nyu at tish and and i started to just kind of dislike them as grown-ups as like slightly ar emotionally arrested grown-ups whose worldview maybe hadn't evolved quite far enough beyond the seventh grade binaries and i they started to drive me fucking crazy, even though I sort of intellectually kept admiring the show and kept watching it i think i watched like Easily, I watched five five episodes or more. But uh, anyone else? Anyone else on this wavelength? Or I don't. I, I don't. Qu I'm not quite sure that I understand why how you can extrapolate from their performances to knowing anything about their 31 year old selves. But to the I, extent but, that, but Dana, they're 31 year old women replaying out the drama of being seventh graders. But is that not legitimate that, material you, for a show? That can't help get you thinking that they, on some level, find this elemental and worthy of revisiting you know there's like a lack of poignancy and ten tenderness that you would have if the show featured 13 year old actresses in a way like there's what uh, or let me throw the question back on you what effect is achieved by this really glaring conceit that defines every single minute of the show I mean, I think, as I said in, in my earlier summary of it, I don't feel like it defines every single minute. It's funny that I'm defending the show because I didn't even completely love it. But I'm sure that these women are pretty mature and together 31-year-olds because they were able my... to write it and produce an entire show together. I, I couldn't have done that when I was 31. Okay, but I mean, I, I, I am not in any way trying to insult them. I'm trying to understand my reaction to the conceit. And help me understand, like, why this, dis it's a very, very bold decision. It defines the entire show. Why? Like, why do this? Like, what's the effect? Like, I, it, it works on the viewer in ways that I'm just trying to become conscious of. I guess the intended effect, and at times it works for me and at times not, and I guess it always works, but I'm just not quite sure how, how far or how deep that goes. But the intended effect is simply to 
sort of dramatize the exact situation you were describing, that your your adolescent self and all its broken dorkiness helps to define the person that you become. And so I guess it's it's an attempt to, to look back in the body of one's, I mean, it's, it's, that, it's that fantasy always, right? Of like, what if I could go back and, and live it now? Except that they don't seem to have any more, you know, moral agency than, than they would have when, when they were 13. I understand your instinct to defend these women against Steve's question, Dana, but I do know what you mean. I, 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 I did not feel that having the performances be by adults is actually central to what the show is doing. And so it feels a little random and it begins to feel as though part of the point of having them play the performance is that what's better than, you know, writing and running a really interesting show than writing, running and starring in a really interesting show. And so the conceit feels, um, I don't know, the conceit does feel a little bit extra to me. I, 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 um, I hear you on that. Um, and I, I also think to your point about freaks and geeks, like there's some strange touches in the way that they treat, for example, Maya's mom. There's some kind of goofy touches of tone that add to the sense that the world around them is a little bit flimsy and not quite real. The thing I liked about that and the thing that I think the show has that um, that sex education does not have is the kind of hot and heady world of female friendship that at the moment, the exact moment when you're becoming conscious of the fact that uh, a relationship with someone you're sexually attracted to will become an important force in your life is the moment when the actual most important emotional force in your life is your friend and your friendships and those kind of like sweaty phone head conversations with the when you used to actually have an actual phone pressed against your head when you talk to somebody for hours and hours about what happened to so-and-so's body over spring break at summer camp. Um, like that, I love when shows get friendship right. And um, that was one of my favorite things about The League, weirdly, that that kind of goofy sports show on FX. Um, and I thought that actually the show is sort of smarter about the intensity and attraction and like almost psychosis of female friendship at that age. It's almost smarter about that than it is about sex and that that was the thing that felt like the most interesting part of the show. Julia, since you had a critique of the 90s nostalgia in Captain Marvel, I have to ask you, what did you think of the 90s nostalgia and trappings that are all over this show? It takes place in 2000, we should say, in the year 2000. Uh, I'm not quite the right micro-generation to ask, I think, for that. I mean, I honestly, I'm probably 10 years older than these characters. I was probably the age they are in 1990 rather than in the year 2000. So I was like aware of the music they were listening to, um, but not quite it, that that did not feel like the same bops or the same aesthetic or the same clothes uh, that they were wearing. So I didn't quite get that same nostalgia burn. It's got some good set design, I have to say. It's got some really fun trappings in the girls' rooms, and it's it, it's it's fun to look at. It's full of bright colors and weird details that um that make it make it snap by, even if you don't think it's the most brilliant show of all time. I just want to be absolutely perfectly clear about something is that these two women by definition have to be remarkably gifted in order to have created this TV show, written it, starred in it, um, and kind of animated it. It's every, you know, creative, you know, molecule. Um, I'm not at all casting aspersions on them as, as talents or as human beings. I'm just trying to reckon with the effect of what it's like to watch 31 year old women in inhabit their seventh grade analog and, and, and act in ways that are meant to be kind of annoying and immature and whether that makes you sometimes sort of sit back and think, oh, I'm watching like an immature 31-year-old or I'm watching someone who's making a super sophisticated comment on what it's like to be an arrested human being because of the damage done to you in seventh grade. I mean, I think all of those things are in those performances, which is why the show's really notable. But um, anyway, okay, it's Pen15, it's on Hulu. Uh, and you should check it out, and we'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, maybe find us on Twitter. Okay, moving forward. Seth Stevenson is a staff writer for Slate Magazine. He joins us now to talk about his truly remarkable long-form piece, Guilty, which is up on the site now. Um, Seth, I'm going to kick this to you pretty soon here, but uh, and there are a lot of details to this case, but you sat on a jury a couple of decades ago, uh, you 
rendered a judgment with that jury and it's sat with you ever since. And so this is both a kind of long form descriptive narrative piece about the process of being on a jury, but it's really an examination of your own conscience conscience as someone who had the right and the power to decide the fate of another human being. I, I, I take us through it, but I would, would say that the two very important facts that our listener who may not have read the piece yet will probably want to hear more about and want to know is that, first of all, it was two people committed a crime, r- resulted in the death of a third party. One person, in your estimation, was clearly culpable. The other person was far more ambiguous. And as one lawyer said to you recently, you were caught in the crossfires of a horrible legal doctrine. You were sort of forced by the legal code to convict, somewhat forced by the legal code to convict the second party as some form of an accessory and send them to jail. And the second incredibly salient fact about this piece is that you were the last holdout on the jury. It was kind of the classic you know, almost, you know, 12 angry men scenario of 11 people ready to, you know, vote to convict. And you, you were very young at the time. You had an inclination to hold out and then you didn't. So why don't take us a little bit through the crime and then what, what made you revisit this experience? Yeah. So briefly, the crime is, uh, uh, this one guy, Maurice, got in sort of a road rage incident with some off-duty police officers. They weren't in uniform. Their cars weren't marked. And um, Maurice went off in a huff, and he went and enlisted some backup and went back um, with, and there were two guys, Maurice and Dominique, who uh, my story is mostly about. Um, they went to the top of a hill and looked down on the off-duty police officers who this uh, road rage argument had been with, and somebody shot down the hill. At least one person shot down the hill and ended up killing one of the off-duty police officers. So uh, I became a juror on that trial, on that murder trial. Um, I, at the time, I was an editorial assistant at Slate. This was in 1998 in Washington, D.C., um, and I was one year out of college. Um, and I, I was sort of, I thought it might be kind of fun to be on a murder trial as a juror. I thought it might be interesting and, you know, it would give me some life experience and wouldn't this be a, 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 a cool, weird thing to experience? Um, and then as, it, as, as the trial went on and it, the gravity of the situation became more immense, um, I got swept up in having to make this decision about this second guy, Dominic, who had been enlisted as backup and come along. And I didn't feel that the prosecution had, had proved that he had fired a gun. Um, and yet the way the aiding and abetting legal language worked, um, we sort of, as jurors, seemed bound to convict Dominique of, of first-degree murder um, even if he hadn't taken his gun out of his pocket, even if we thought they hadn't proved he'd taken his gun out of his pocket. Uh, and I eventually, I try, I sort of held out. I sort of went back and forth. Uh, the, the sort of the logic of the, the legal language eventually overcame my reservations and, and the forceful arguments of, of some of the other people on the jury overcame my reservations. And so I voted to convict. And for a while I told myself, well, I was just bound by that legal language, that aiding and abetting doctrine. Um, but eventually I thought to myself, well, wait a second, what happened here? How did this happen? How did this jury do this? Why was the law like this? And so I, I, I started to go back and try to reinvestigate what happened. Um, and I found all the court transcripts and I interviewed the judge and the prosecutor and the defense attorney. And, and, and I interviewed, um, Dominic, the guy, the guy I'd convicted, uh, who I felt maybe should not have been convicted. And I found him in prison and, and, and I spoke with him and that's, and that's how the story happened. Just one salient point that I'm not sure you mentioned just now is that Dominic was only 17 when the crime occurred, right? And and Maurice was 25, I believe. Maurice was, I think, uh, tw- 23. 22 or 23. Right. Uh, Dominic was, was 17, um, but he was tried as an adult. And I, I didn't really understand why that was actually as a juror. They don't tell you that kind of stuff. Um, but he it turns out he's tried as an adult because you know the, the prosecutor's office has that at their discretion, can try a minor as an adult if they think the crime is heinous enough. And that's what they did. They tried him as an adult. And that was something that was evident in the trial. The juror watching various witnesses talk about it was that he was much younger than this other guy, and he 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 hadn't been involved in the initial argument. There, you know, the, the sort of the animus, the the emotional animus of the of the crime wasn't his. He he come along as as backup and had never talked to these guys or argued with these guys. Um, and he was seventeen years old. And and the more I thought about dumb decisions I made when I was seventeen, um, and 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 thinking about paying them paying for them for the next you know four decades, um, yeah, I, I mean there were all these sort of elements of the law 
that conspired against him. There, there, there's the fact that he was 17, but he was still tried as an adult. There's the fact that he and his, his co-defendant, the other guy, Maurice, were tried in the same trial. So, And each one is saying the other one was the shooter. They're both accusing the other. So they both sort of function as a second prosecutor against the other guy. Right. And you'll see in some cases... They'll they'll sever two co-defendants like that, so that doesn't happen. And, and like Martin Shkreli, the famous you know dickhead pharmaceuticals guy, right. he made that argument. He had a co-defendant, and they were each blaming each other. And he argued, well, this should be severed. We're blaming each other. Exactly, exactly the same logic. And it was severed. All right, he's a rich white guy, so it happened for him. We should uh, we. I don't think you mentioned this also, but both the defendants and the victim were black, right? Everybody was black in this. That both of the defendants were, uh, the, and this is happening in Northeast D.C. Yeah. I'm going to ask some questions that are cheating a little bit, Seth, because uh, I worked with you on this story for a, a while before I left Slate, and it was a really hard story to report and then a hard story to write to report because you were trying to find all of these people from 20-odd years ago, and then hard to write because the story that was indelible in your own mind and that um, caused you to weigh an injustice that had been done, you thought, and that you had taken part in doing. It turned out when you brought this to all kinds of legal experts and people uh, thinking about what happened in our criminal justice system, they didn't think it was so special. It was, this is, uh, you you know, you were just a juror. There's hundreds of jurors, hundreds of juries, probably maybe even thousands of juries sit every day. And uh, they must weigh the fate of men and women, and then they do, and then on they go. And so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the conflict between what a significant drama this was for you and for Dominic, more so for Dominic, and how the legal establishment thought about it when you brought it to them as a reporting question. Yeah, when I when I went back and talked to the prosecutor and to the the government appointed defense attorney who'd been Dominic's attorney, yeah, neither of them thought there's anything particularly remarkable about this. I mean, it's the kind of case, particularly in 1990s Washington D.C., was the kind of stupid shooting case that that was really par for the course. It happened, you know, not infrequently, and and to me, you know, this was Dominic was this sort of like tragic victim of my, partly of my own actions, um, but to them, you know, he was just another. Black kid in Northeast D.C. who made some really dumb decisions, who brought a gun to uh, what he knew, you know, was was, was a potential conflict, um, and tough luck for him. Um, and th- I mean that that eventually, what we kind of settled on in in writing the story was okay. Maybe this isn't you know um, uh, the the most remarkable trial that ever happened, but that in itself. Look at all the ways the system conspired against Dominic. All the ways it was stacked against him in this very typical crime, typical trial. And let's step back and think about why, how did that happen? Why is that? And, 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 you know, you, you could maybe tell a million stories like this, but in this case, I'm telling this story because I was one of the cogs in the machine that put Dominic in jail for 40, 50 years. Um, and, you know, being a juror and, and playing my part and, and everyone I talked to from the judge to the prosecutor, the defense attorney and, and the other jurors, we all felt we were playing these roles in the system and and everyone sort of expressed this idea that they were kind of constrained, whether it was the judge talking about mandatory minimum sentencing. She, you know, she had to give Dominic a certain number of years in prison, even if she felt he was less culpable in the crime, whether it's the defense attorney, um, you know, who's government appointed talking about like, you know, he, he, he would have liked to sever. But the fact is, it's really hard to sever a trial like this because it's more expensive to run two trials. It takes more time. You have to do everything twice. Um, and then the jurors, me and the, and, and the jurors I found and spoke to who said, oh, well, you know, that language, that legal language, we were sort of bound by it. But everyone, like, it's it's sort of like, who's actually in control here? Who's actually responsible for what happened to this kid? And everyone's kind of saying, well, you know, it was it was it was this, the law, it was the system, it was this, and no one's actually sort of saying, well, what could I have done maybe to to, to create a different outcome here? Right. And, and those things that seemed so immutable to you at the time, like the uh, the fact that the co-defendants hadn't been severed or the fact that there was this aiding and abetting doctrine that was the way it was, are all, you find out 20 years later, temporary situations. If the same trial had happened a certain number of years later, I forget how many, you would no longer have had to ab- abide by that aiding and abetting 
policy. Yeah, I, t- I spoke to uh, an NYU law professor, and she'd actually been um, a lawyer in D.C. in that era. And so she was really familiar with this doctrine, this aiding and abetting doctrine that was in use at the time. And it got overturned. because. And the, the problem with it was, at that time, and the way the legal language was explained to, uh, to the jury, um, it didn't really matter what Dominic's intent was when he was going to the scene of the crime with a gun. It didn't really matter if his intent was that we were going to go kill someone or his intent was just, oh, I think my friend is is going to beat someone up and I'm just going to be there. Um, or my friend is going to you know, have a shouting match and I'm just going to be there. It didn't matter what was going on in his head. And that is kind of antithetical to how we usually think about deciding someone's guilt or innocence. We usually think about why, you know, what was their intent? What were they trying to do? What, you know, are they culpable or not because they, they meant to do this? And, th- and that doctrine kind of erased that. And so eventually that got overturned and they changed it. And, and under the new doctrine, you have to, prosecution has to prove that the, 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 this co-defendant, this aider and abetter intended for the crime to happen. It's something they wanted to bring about. So it, it might've been a completely different outcome now. And, 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 Regardless, but it does. What's weird about that, though, is that it doesn't even matter. Even though the law changed, that according to this law professor, is is not really grounds for reexamining what happened to Dominic and and doing anything about it. Yeah, I mean, to me, that was one of the most interesting things about your reporting was just the complexity here. I, I wouldn't have known that the fact that a common interpretation of the law that was later adjudicated to be incorrect and amended, um, you know, turned out. Like that, that wouldn't be grounds for appeal. That that if you had been improperly defended, you know, that there are all kinds of grounds for appeal. None of them successful thus far in Dominic's case. But that oh, the entire way in which we conducted or interpreted what the crime was for this period, the fact that we later changed that—that's not grounds for appeal. That in and of itself seems like another thing about the justice system that that on the one hand you hear it and you say oh gosh well i guess that's the law you can't appeal but of course that's what you were doing in the jury booth and it makes you think well should should that not be grounds for appeal maybe that's something that we should also be reconsidering about the justice system yeah and it, this was the thing about going back and reporting this and talking to all these um folks involved in the criminal justice system was it was like turning over rocks and finding worms everywhere i looked there were just all these things where like for instance the even though this was a, a local crime in Washington, D.C., because of the weird nature of Washington, D.C., this gets tried as a federal crime. And because Dominic's convicted and sent to prison, he's sent to federal prison. And there's no federal prison in Washington, D.C., so he's, he enters the federal prison system. And now he just gets shipped around at the whim of wardens, as far as I can tell. He gets sent to California. He's in Arizona at one point. And his mother, who's in Washington, D.C., can't afford to go to these far-flung places to visit him. So it's it's just this terrible burden on the family. They never get to see him. Um, the federal prison system also, I mean, this is a, a, another thing I discovered is it's basically impossible for a journalist to talk to a federal prisoner. It's basically almost never happens. The warden has complete discretion to just say, no, I don't think I want you to come here and and talk to him. And that's that. And and I, and I, I with multiple wardens, because Dominic would get shifted around in the federal prison system as I was reporting this over years and years, um, with multiple wardens at different prisons, it would happen. I would make this request and they would say, no, you can't come talk to him. And I would ask for some reason why. And they would just basically say, because we said so, because, you know, we don't want you to. And th- that seems abs- that seems absurd to me. I mean, that in itself is outrageous. Um, there's this other thing I discovered where there's this strange quasi-legal organization that was charging Dominic's mother to uh, and, and promising her, charging her money and promising her that they were going to write up some kind of motion that was going to help um, Dominic get his conviction overturned. But as, as far as I can tell, they weren't really digging up any new evidence or finding any new arguments. They were just kind of having her pay them money each month and stringing her along and promising her some light at the end of the tunnel. And I, I, I'm starting to think, having looked around on, on, on the web a little bit about this organization, that they're doing this to, to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families of people in prison and stringing along and bilking them out of money on like a subscription basis. It, it's, just, it's just sort of like horror everywhere you look once you start digging into this stuff. So Seth, you do eventually track down Dominic and talk to him. What was that experience like? I was nervous, um, as you can imagine. Uh, I was nervous talking to this guy I'd put in prison for a long time. Um, some friends of mine were like, "You're crazy to go talk to this guy. What if he's really angry at you for doing this? What you know? Who knows how he'll react?" But I just decided I was going to talk to him, and um, he was uh, remarkably kind. And and I told him right off the bat, hey, I was on the jury that, that that convicted you. And he said, that's okay. And he right away said, you did what they told you to do. 
You know, you did, you, you, you had to follow their instructions. You did what they told you to do. And he didn't seem to have any animosity at me and he was happy to talk to me. And, um, and, and so we went from there and we talked, you know, on and off every, you know, we, I'd go several months without speaking to him and then speaking to him again over a period of six years. Um, I just spoke to, I spoke to him last, uh, on the phone, um, in in the fall, um, and I sent him the story when it published, and uh, over email, I emailed with him with him a bunch over this prison email system. He just sent back a one word response. He just said "respect!" exclamation point when I sent him the link to the story. Um, but he <laughs> is is in to me shockingly good humor when I speak to him. He he's written a novel which I talk about in in the piece, and and I've read, and he's trying to write more novels, um, and so he sort of found. Um, that this thing that he loves to do in in prison since after being sent to prison. Seth, it's obvious why this was a logistically hard story to report, but it seems like, and this comes out in the writing as well, that it was also an emotionally hard story to report. And I was just curious, not only in talking to Dominic, but all the different people you talked to, including Dominic's mother and other jurors that you remembered from from twenty years ago that you were able to track down. Was was this were these some of the hardest cold calls you've had to do as a journalist? I mean, given the fact that you were both reporting the story, and as you say, you're a cog in the machine of it. Yeah, contacting Dominic and telling him who I was, I had incredible trepidation about that. Talking to his mom um, also and saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I helped put your son in prison. Um, but almost everyone, the responses were not what, what, what I was scared of at all. The responses were incredibly welcoming and warm. Dominic's mother invited me to her house. I sat on her couch in her living room and talked to her about what had happened. Um, the other jurors who I found, I found a few of the jurors and to a T, they all said, I have been thinking about this trial for the last two decades also. And I have been curious how it happened that way. It seems what, you know, why did we convict both those guys, you know, for, uh, when, when it seemed like only one of them was clearly guilty. Um, and, and I, it was actually very cathartic to speak to, um, the jurors, um, because that, if you've ever been on jury, it's such a weird thing where you're randomly selected, thrown together with these 11 other people you don't know who are also randomly selected. And then you have to come somehow hash out an agreement on the fate, you know, if it's a serious crime, um, you have to hash out an agreement on, on whether you're going to send someone to prison for like, you know, the bulk of their life. And you're just doing this with these strangers you met like six days ago. It's a it's an incredibly strange thing to do. And there's not really any like debriefing process after you do it. They just... Once the verdict is given, they just kind of say, okay, you're, you've discharged your duty. Uh, here's the door. Go ahead. And then I think for the most part, almost all the time, you never talk to the, your fellow jurors again. And you're just left wondering, how, how did we do that? Who were those people? What, uh, and you're brought together in this incredible, this like hothouse atmosphere where you're deciding these important things. And then you just disperse and don't talk to them again. And I just felt like there must be all these sort of like jury refugees out there you know, very isolated from each other who'd come together and now have drifted apart. And it was it was incredibly cathartic for me to talk to those fellow jurors again and share what we'd been thinking and how and, and kind of try to piece out how we'd come to that decision. I'm just really glad you did it because the piece is really honest and really hard to read, but but really, really important. Yeah, it's a great piece of writing. It's guilty. It's up on Slate.com. It's by Seth Stevenson. You should check it out. Seth, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about it. Thank you. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Dana, what do you have? Stephen, I have two things. One is a really quick callback to last week's show. So we spent the entire show talking about the documentary Leaving Neverland and we never got to the Oprah special that aired immediately after it, which I realized after we had this long conversation about this four hour documentary that I thought we had sort of approached from every angle, that the Oprah interview is a completely necessary coda to sort of understand the reception of the show in these guys' lives. And questions that I came out of Leaving Neverland with included how has doing this show changed their relationships, you know, with their families and wives, et cetera. And they get into this in the in the Oprah conversation, and it's just really cathartic. I mean, you've just watched that documentary, and it's really difficult, and you're kind of struggling with it. And you just need Oprah in your life at that moment. Oprah comes in with her with her warm, compassionate way and makes it all feel better and also brings out a lot of new information. So it's the interview that Oprah Winfrey does with Dan Reed, the director, and also James Safechuck and Wade Robson, the two subjects of the documentary. That's one just quick endorsement. 
And uh, and the other one is this book that I just started, so I can only speak to its first two chapters, but it's great so far. It's a new book called The Art of American Screen Acting, 1912 to 1960. It's by Dan Callahan. And uh, and what he essentially does is is go actor by actor um, through all those years. Some of the people he covers are he starts with Lillian Gish, the, the D.W. Griffith muse, and goes all the way through the kind of Marlon Brando, Kim Stanley actors studio method era and talks about how American acting in movies has changed and uh, and how our idea of what a good actor is has changed. And he just has a very specific way of writing about performance. I think he comes from a theater background and is really good at breaking things down like, you know, gestures and eye lines with the camera and, and what actors have done through this series of decades to create an illusion on screen and how our idea of, of what's fake and what's real on screen has changed. And it's just, it's a really fascinating book so far. So The Art of American Screen Acting by Dan Callahan. Oh, excellent. Um, Julia, what do you have? Uh, I have a recipe to endorse. I think I've spoken before about my fondness for Smitten Kitchen, which is a recipe blog done by Deb Perlman. Um, I've probably endorsed recipes from it before. I find it to just be one of the most reliable recipe sources. If you make a recipe from it, you will get something good. Something good will come out. It will be clear. Uh, you will have a pleasant cooking experience. It was my son's birthday a couple weeks ago. We had a birthday party. One of the advice pieces of advice you always get about twins is make two cakes. Got to give each twin their own cake. They are not they should not have to share a cake merely because they share a birth date. So I always figure out what my guys want and cook them each a cake. And um, one of my sons wanted chocolate cake with vanilla icing and the other wanted or chocolate cake with white icing and the other wanted a confetti cake with white icing, which put me in the unenviable position of contemplating a birthday cake that had two cakes frosted with uh, vanilla buttercream, which is just too much vanilla buttercream. Buttercream is like already borderline gross on one cake, especially if it's not chocolate, and two is too much. So I wanted to find a cake recipe that had that kind of marshmallowy frosting that's like sticky and gooey and involves egg whites and is basically like spreading the interior of a marshmallow on a cake. That kind of frosting is often a little bit difficult to make. You usually have to like heat stuff and put, use a hand mixer over a double boiler. And But then when it comes out, it's great. I also have been trying to make a good chocolate cake for years and years and years, and have made just a bunch of dudsy chocolate cakes, unfortunately. Um, however, this recipe on Smitten Kitchen for a homemade devil dog, ding dong, or hostess cake is bonkers good. The chocolate cake I made was dense, rich, dark, had a, a tight little springy crumb, um, and you know, it's probably the best chocolate cake I've made in a decade. And the marshmallow frosting is complicated as such frostings are. You do have to use a hand mixer over a double boiler, but, um, you know, worked, turned out, and this cake was delicious. So I would recommend uh, homemade devil dog, ding dong, or hostess cake. I made the version where you double the frosting, make two layers, and just make it like a proper cake. Uh, I will put a link to that on our show page. Julia, I believe I had a piece of one of those cakes at your house, didn't I? I think you had a piece of both of the cakes and you only ate this one because it was the one that was good. <laughs> confetti cakes are fundamentally sort of gross, but, uh, you know, it turned out okay, the confetti cake that I made for my other son. You're such a good mom. Um, I love Smitten Kitchen, by the way. It is so infallible. Uh, okay, I would like to endorse a couple of essays I read on the web this week. I thought they were both really exemplary. One is called Hudson Yards. It's on the new Hudson Yards development, which is nearing completion in New York City. It's by a writer I didn't know named Jake Biddle. Uh, and it's on The Point magazine. We'll include a link to it on our show page. But um, it is just a beautifully written consideration of what this mammoth postmodernist nouveau riche monstrosity is and means in the sort of arc of American urbanity as it's developed over the last 25 to 50 years. Uh, and it has wonderful sentences. Let me read one. Um, Above me, everything sparkled. It was from that vantage that the tension of a place like Hudson Yards was clearest, the tension that is between how it appears and what it represents. It was impossible for me to look up at the cluster of lazuline towers and not feel disgust at the concentrated wealth they had been created to serve. But it was just as impossible not to be entranced by their surfaces, compelled almost to pull out my phone and take a picture of the assembled whole, 
assembled whole. I uh, thought that was a really good, really strong essay. And then there's a wonderful essay by Michael Weiss uh, over at the Daily Beast, a really long essay considering W.H. Auden, the poet, in light of the poetry that he wrote in the 30s, for which he's most well-known, which has a kind of public-mindedness in the face of fascism. Like, what will public life be uh during a time when one must fight fascists with everything one has, but also when one might lose to them. And um, he came, Auden came to look back on that poetry as overly simplistic in a way, and maybe even a betrayal of his own gifts. So he had his very mixed, Auden had very mixed feelings about some of the most famous poets, poems he ever wrote. And I just thought Weiss's essay is really, really intelligent about that. And it gets into Auden's relationship with politics and the United States, um, with other poets and with Hannah Arendt at the end. It's just, it's just a really exemplary piece of sort of public literary criticism, um, whose parallels to the present moment don't need to be drawn out and so really aren't. It's just implied that this is an important subject to care about right now, even though at other times in American history, it might seem esoteric to revive, um, our interest in this. But, uh, I thought it was just a, it was a really admirable, I, I just thought really just incredibly admirable piece of uh, of literary criticism and good on the Daily Beast for publishing it. Honestly, I mean, it felt to me as though it was several thousand words long, but check it out. Uh, we'll link to that as well. All right. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. As always, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. You can find us on Twitter. We've got a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Here's a short preview of our Slate Plus segment for today. If you want to hear the whole thing, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash culture plus. But just to clarify, you you didn't think that the guy himself was in on the scheme in the sense that he slipped and fell and broke his hip on purpose in order to get into some defrauding scheme. I know this sounds like ultra sinister, but it 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 did not seem to me completely out of the realm of the possibility that like the people behind this bounced this guy off of a hard surface. Thanks for listening. Again, to hear the whole thing, you can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash culture plus.